And turn with me, if you will, please, in your Bibles to Isaiah and the third chapter. We left off last time at the end of chapter 2 on a note of judgment and of doom under the terror of God. Judah had fitted herself for such terror, and it would befall her, indeed, with the descent of the Babylonian armies and captivity in Babylon. As a matter of fact, the dread of God's judgment would befall her several times through the instrumentality of different nations in the centuries to follow, not only Babylon, but others as well. Rome, eventually, in the first century, in A.D. 70. For that reason, E.J. Young points out in his commentary that the fulfillment of these prophecies should not be limited in our minds to the Babylonian captivity only, but to all of the judgments from which that time on came over Israel and which still rests on that unfortunate people. Last week we were reminded that all of these judgments also bespeak and foreshadow the judgment that will eventually fall on the wicked in that great day of the Lord yet to come. But uh, what about God's judgments? Whether they fall 700 years before Christ's appearance on the earth or 70 years, years after his birth or 7,000 years after his ascension, if the Lord should tarry? Are they just judgments? That is to say, when God judges a disobedient people, such as Israel had become in Isaiah's day, does he justly judge? Are his punishments, terrible as they are, over the top? Are they excessive More than what those sins truly deserve? Well, Israel has an answer. Isaiah, rather, has an answer to which we'll go in just a moment. First, we'll pray. Father in heaven, we need your spirit. The same spirit who inspired Isaiah to write these words 2,700 years ago. Now to illumine them to our hearts today, right here and right now. And according to your own blessing and your promise, we Plead for that work. May he do that powerful work now in our hearts and lives, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Isaiah 3, we begin at verse 1. For behold, the day the Lord of hosts is taking away from Jerusalem and from Judah support and supply, all support of bread and all support of water. The mighty man and the soldier, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder the captain of fifty and the man of rank, the counselor and the skilled magician and the expert in charms. And I will make boys their princes, and infants shall rule over them. And the people will oppress one another, everyone his fellow and everyone his neighbor. The youth will be insolent to the elder and the despised to the honorable. For a man will take hold of his brother, saying in the house of his father, You have a cloak. You shall be our leader. And and this heap of ruins shall be under your rule. And that day he will speak out, saying, I will not be a healer. In my house there is neither bread nor cloak. You shall not make me leader of the people. For Jerusalem has stumbled, and Judah has fallen because their speech and their deeds are against the Lord, defying His glorious presence. 
For the look in their faces bears witness against them. They they proclaim their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to them, for they've brought evil on themselves. Tell the righteous that it shall be well with them, for they shall eat the fruit of their deeds. Woe to the wicked. It shall be ill with him, for what his hands have dealt out shall be done to him. My people, infants are their oppressors and women rule over them. Oh, my people, you, your guides mislead you and they have swallowed up the course of your paths. The Lord has taken his place to contend. He stands to judge peoples. The Lord will enter into judgment with the elders and princes of his people. It is you who have devoured the vineyard. The spoil of the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people, by grinding the face of the poor, declares the Lord God of hosts. The Lord said, because the daughters of Zion are haughty and walk with outstretched necks, Next, glancing wantonly with their eyes, mincing along as they go, tinkling with their feet. Therefore, the Lord will strike with a scab the heads of the daughters of Zion. And the Lord will lay bare their secret parts. And that day, the Lord will take away the finery of the anklets, the headbands, and the crescents, the pendants, the bracelets, the scarves, the headdresses, the armlets, the sashes, the perfume boxes, and the amulets, the signet rings and nose rings, the festal robes, the, the mantles, the cloaks, and the handbags, the mirrors, the linen garments, the turbans, and the veils. Instead of perfume, there will be rottenness. Instead of a belt, a rope. Instead of well-set hair, baldness. And instead of a rich robe, a skirt of sackcloth. And branding instead of beauty. Your men shall fall by the sword and your mighty men in battle. And her gates shall lament and mourn empty. She shall sit on the ground. And seven women shall take hold of one man in that day, saying... We will eat our own bread and wear our own clothes. Only let us be called by your name. Take away our reproach. I think that most of you here know what that term poetic justice means. If not, you'll already be familiar with the concept. It means basically that the punishment fits the crime. Poetic justice is when one suffers in a way that is perfectly fitted, poetically fitted for his sin. Someone here might recognize the song from the Gilbert and Sullivan comic operetta, The Mikado. The chorus goes like this. My object all sublime I shall achieve in time to make the punishment fit the crime. The punishment fit the crime. One of the verses is about billiard players, pool players. The billiard shark whom anyone catches, his doom's extremely hard. He's made to dwell in a dungeon cell in a spot that's always barred. And there he plays extravagant matches in fitless 
finger stalls on a cloth untrue with a twisted cue and elliptical billiard balls. And then the singer breaks out in a rousing laugh because, of course, the punishment not only fits the crime, the pool shark who had taken another's money in pool, now forever doomed to play the game but never to win, but also because it's a humorous penalty. It's a, it's a funny picture, the pool shark with a twisted cue and, and warped tabletop and billiard balls that aren't even round. It's an hilarious picture. But there was no hilarity, there was no humor to be found in the poetic justice of Isaiah's prophecy. Well, some may have laughed him off. Surely they did. Even some of them with a slightly uncomfortable laugh. But this prophecy of God's justice is fitting, not so much poetic, but perfect, perfectly fitted justice. His precise judgment upon these people with a punishment perfectly fitted to their crimes was no laughing matter. The central theme of this, this passage of Scripture, which we've heard this morning, is yet another example from Scripture of a principle found face up on its pages from beginning to end of retributive justice, an exact reward for the deed, an emphasis made all through the Scripture of divine judgment known by this name, Lex Talionis, or retribution in kind, of God's punishment exactly fitted to the crime. It is admittedly a theme which, though shot all through the Bible, hardly receives much recognition in Christian circles today because the entire doctrine of God's judgment and wrath and justice has become so scarce in Christian preaching and teaching. Once again, here Isaiah is filling another gap in our modern thinking and so reminds us of a truth that is little regarded or understood or certainly feared today. God's perfect retributive justice. Consider the text with me and see how this principle drives Isaiah's sermon. Isaiah turns to the church and says, in effect, so you think you're strong, do you? And Judah did. She really did. She, she, she saw Israel to the north taken away and said to herself, well, they might be swept away by Assyria, Assyria but Judah, ah, we in the southern kingdom, to whom Isaiah's preaching now, Judah thinks herself invincible. After all, she was in possession of the ultimate talisman, the temple. Surely she was safe. Whatever else was happening on the streets of Jerusalem, she could be sure that God would never bring calamity here. Oh no, we have the temple. Oh, says Isaiah. Behold, verse 1, the Lord God of hosts is taking away from Jerusalem and Judea support and supply, all support of bread and all support of water. 
This was a terrifying picture. Jerusalem, well out, these things, of course, would become thoroughly vulnerable. A city on a hill, as she was, she was utterly dependent on scarce supplies of difficult-to-access subterranean water supplies to survive. And what Isaiah is doing here is painting a picture of instability and of helplessness in Judah. It continues in verse 2, from which we may easily deduce that Judah had pretended to find her strength, her might, in her men, particularly in her leaders, in whom they had come to place a sort of confidence that she should only ever have placed in God and in God alone. Therefore, the Lord of hosts, in other words, the one true God of all, the real source of all strength and power is taking away, verse 2, the mighty man and the soldier, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain of 50 and the man of rank, the counselor and the skillful magi- magician and the expert in charms. So you want to depend on men? You want to make men your stronghold? You want to depend on Great leaders among men? I'll take them away. And I'll replace them with wimps. With with losers. With weak and ineffective leaders. Verse 4, I will make boys their princes and infants shall rule over them. They'll become desperate for leaders. Verse 6, a man will take hold of his brother in the house of his father saying, You have a cloak? (laughs) This is the qualification for office now. You have a cloak. You be our leader. And this heap of ruins, this will be your rule. Not that God delights, you see. Not that he delights in the least in bringing poetic justice. Not at all. Hear the grief in verse 12. My people, my people. People, infants are their oppressors and women rule over them. My people, your guides mislead you and they've swallowed up the course of your paths. And he goes on to judge, to judge also their sensuality. Jerusalem, not unlike the culture of our own day, had become a sensually driven place. Very sensuous. And that mixed with pride. That's the picture we get here in verse 16. The daughters of Zion are haughty and walk with outstretched necks, glancing wantonly with their eyes, mincing along as they go, tinkling with their feet. Jerusalem, like our own culture, and alas, like much of the Christian church today, had come to regard outward adornment and physical sensuality more highly than true beauty, if not to the total exclusion of it. How would she suffer for this? Well, in ways perfectly fitted the crime, verse 17, therefore the Lord will strike with a scab the heads of the daughters of Zion. One of the commentators says he'll turn the the women of Jerusalem into scabrous hags. 
and the Lord will lay bare their secret parts. Are God's judgments just? Always. And his justice is poetically accurate. And he declares it over and over and over again in his word by precept and by example. Here in verse 11, what his hands have done, have dealt out, shall be done to him. Similarly, in Psalm 7, he says, He who digs a hole and scoops it out falls into the pit he's made. The trouble he causes recoils on himself. His violence comes down on his own head. Remember Haman? Remember that picture of Haman? Hanging from the gallows, 75 feet in the air, the gallows he had prepared for Mordecai. Jesus put it this way, those who draw the sword shall die by the sword. This, this, this principle of lex talionis is enshrined in God's own law. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And God promises to judge all mankind in just that way. By that very principle, if you gouge out someone else's eye, your punishment will come in kind. No more, but indeed no less than what your sin deserves. The Lex Talionis principle, you see, did as much to contain the punishment as it did to maintain it. You couldn't execute someone in Israel for stealing a loaf of bread or gouge out someone's eyes for stealing some figs. It kept the punishment from either being too harsh or too lax. Such is the righteousness of God's judgment. As we say in our confession of sin from time to time, he is justified in his judgments. His judgment is just. Now what does all of that have to do with you? Well, just this. God has not changed. He is still of God, a God of perfectly, impeccably just justice. Just as our spiritual mothers and fathers in Judah would face the rigorous justice of the bar of God, so must you, and so must I. So must every man and woman and boy and girl. Hell itself is and will be the perfect and eternal expression of Jehovah's exacting justice, inexorably matched to the crime. As Jesus himself put it, some will be beaten with many stripes, some with few. From everyone who has been given much, much will be required. See, God's wrath is, is not some divine fit of temper. It's not God flying off the handle. God's wrath is exact, perfect in its application, and just, perfectly just in its punishments. This truth that the, the punishments of hell will fit each sin perfectly has at other times been illustrated in different ways in order to be impressed on the conscience, on the heart. Durante Alighieri wrote colorful scenes of punishments 
fitted to particular crimes in his work we now commonly call Dante's Inferno. What he calls the fourth circle of hell, Dante writes what he sees. People who lived only for themselves and for their own benefit in this life. Just as the mighty wave above Charybdis shatters itself on the opposing tide, so must these spirits dance and counterdance, more numerous than elsewhere I perceived. On both sides of the ring, a screaming crowd, pushing heavy weights by strength of chest, they came together with a shock, and there they wheeled about, shouting to one another, Why do you squander? Why do you hoard? And then, along the gloomy circle, they returned on either hand, shouting their words of shame, till at the opposite point they met again. Then each one turned around when he had reached the other joust along his semi-circle. See, these people, in their lives on earth, they lived to amass wealth for themselves and didn't care about anyone else. And now in hell, in Dante's picture, they face an endless, fruitless competition, going nowhere and gaining nothing. Or consider Dante's eighth circle of hell, of those who in this life presume to predict the future. Lo, how he makes the breast his shoulders, and who once too far before him wished to see, now backwards looks and treads reverse his path. In other words, those who once called attention to themselves and who deceived others, claiming a power from themselves that belongs only to God, that is to see the future, to know it for the end from the beginning. Now they spend eternity walking backwards, never seeing what's ahead, only what's behind. A punishment fit for the crime. Dante's Inferno, of course, was a Contemporary to his day in the imagery of the 14th century, Isaiah's was in the 8th century B.C., but, but the principle remains the same. God's punishments fit the crime. Make wicked people your delight, my friends. Or as the scripture says, make a life of walking in the counsel of the wicked. Make that your life now, and you will spend eternity with the wicked. This will be your hell. Make the pursuit of sexual pleasure the purpose of your life here, and in hell you will burn forever with desire, but never be able to satisfy it. Make a life of being cruel to others and your hell will be to suffer the the cruelty of others with no opportunity for appeal. The punishment will fit the crime. My friends, I ask you to think about now your own sins and what punishment is fitting them. 
at the hands of a perfectly just God. What must be the, the fitting punishment for your financial sins or your sexual sins or your marital sins, the sins of rebellion against your parents' children, sins of indifference to other people's needs, sins of neglecting God's house. Imagine what a punishment that must be. You didn't want anything to do with God's house and his worship in this life. You thought it a burden to worship me and be in my house on my day. Now you shall never enter my house again. In that lone land of deep despair, no Sabbath's heavenly light will rise. No God regard your bitter prayer nor Savior call you to the skies. Now, before we leave off on this first Sunday in Lent, we must at least briefly follow this doctrine of Lex Talionis to the one place in history where God's perfect and terrible justice has most clearly been Revealed and its consequences most terribly suffered to the cross. Heed the warning of Scripture here in Isaiah and everyone else, everywhere else. The punishment for your sins will be, must be suffered. The only question is by whom? Who will suffer the consequences for your sin? Will you? Will you suffer for the rest of eternity those ways perfectly fitted to your crimes? Alas, many, many people will. But many, a great Multitude of people will not. Why? Because the punishment for their sins has already been suffered by another. Christ. Christ Jesus suffered for every single sin of his chosen people. Each and every one of them as he dangled there between heaven and earth and the cross. Why? So that coming to him through faith and trusting in him, you might not. Look on him there. Tell me, you who hear him groaning. Was there ever grief like this? Friends through fear his cause disowning, foes insulting his distress, many hands were raised to wound him, none would interpose to save. But the deepest stroke that pierced him was the stroke that justice 
gave. Why was that the deepest stroke, the one that justice gave? Because none of the blows that Jesus suffered that day by fist or staff or whip could begin to compare with the punishment that my sin deserves to the stroke of justice fitting my sin and yours. Yet that is precisely what he willingly suffered. His head became a scar. His private parts were exposed. All support of bread and all support of water. All the comfort of friendship and the help of men was stripped from him on the day when the darkness of God's wrath fell on him at Calvary. 